Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Murder in Miami. So you offered Lamar a million dollars to land at his island and to bring the coke back to the United States. Right. One of the most significant things in this whole case was Lamar Chester's appearance before a royal commission of inquiry in the Bahamas. So at the time that the inquiry was happening in the Bahamas, were you even aware that it was going on? Well, it it was shortly after this that the mysterious Morgan Cherry mentioned it. I got a call from Bob who said that Lamar wanted to hire me as as a consultant. There was going to be a pretrial hearing in Atlanta. You didn't worry that you were getting into something that you might not escape from? I just sort of walked right into it. Here's Chester talking to CB about Phil Stanford. I have a guy that I'm paying to gather the facts. Phil Stanford. I am not by any means convinced that he's not currently in the active employee of the CIA. All right, so it's the fall of 1984, and basically... You agree to go to Georgia to help Lamar Chester, who you fully believe is a drug smuggler and who fully believes that you are in the CIA, create a gray male defense? Pretty much, yeah. And your girlfriend, Mickey's okay with all that? Not exactly. You remember Bob and I were at the mutiny to meet Lamar and we were drinking all, pretty much all afternoon before finally got to see him. And when we finished, we were both drunker than skunks. We drove back to the apartment I got out. It was getting dark by then, so I guess I figured I had time to take a nap. So I dozed off. And when I wake up, for some reason, I decide I need to call this girl I'd met in Washington, D.C. when I was up there. And it's dark in the apartment, and I'm still so out of it. I don't hear Mickey open the door, and she's probably standing there for several minutes before I hang up. And there she is, 
By the time the call was over, I guess that was it for Mickey and me. Oh, Phil, I'm sorry. That's kind of awkward. <laughs> and the funny thing is, the girl in D.C. didn't even remember my name when I called her. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Miami. So I moved out of the Amsterdam Palace and ended up uh, renting a room from Jack McClintock, a writer friend who, who actually did the piece that you referred to earlier about the Cardozo. He and his girlfriend had a place in south of Miami. So when Bob called about the pretrial hearings, you were basically available for a consulting gig. Whatever that might be. Yeah, Bob said I was supposed to look for inconsistencies in the daily transcript, and I'd be paid a couple hundred dollars a day plus travel. So it didn't sound like such a bad idea. Bob said I could stay at Lamar's place in Cleveland while I was up there, and he was going to get the tickets, and we'd fly up. I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but you seriously didn't have any hesitation about getting messed up with a federal investigation? You've got to realize I still didn't quite believe that what was going on was even real. But if Lamar thought I was with the CIA and I'd, I'd told him the God's honest truth that I wasn't, who was I to turn down the money? Mostly, though, I, I was just going whichever way the wind was blowing. Well, you know, at this point, you had to have put some thought into why he would have thought that you were actually a CIA operative. I mean, those guys weren't exactly naive or stupid. Well, it's taken me years to get my head around that one. But here's what I think they were thinking. Now, here's this guy down here from Washington, D.C. He's written for the New York Times on national security matters, for Christ's sakes. And everyone knows the agency uses journalists as cover all the time. He's even worked for congressmen on the House Armed Services Committee and for a think tank in D.C. It would be easy enough for them to have looked it up. So here's what they're thinking. Here's this guy. He's not down here writing. He's not asking questions. And he's obviously not interested in the money. No one's that dumb. So he must be with the CIA. Well, you know, there's another possible reason, too. Here's the recording of the taped phone call between Chester and C.B. Hackworth. I have a guy that I'm paying to gather the facts. Uh, I don't know who this guy is, Russell Burns or Russell Burke. I never met him. There was a Russell Burke who was in the indictment, so he would have testified in, in the Lone Star Grand Jury or been a subject of the, of the Lone Star Grand Jury. But <laughs> whatever it was, I have no idea how he could have come to that conclusion. Probably just the same as Lamar and Bob. No one can be that dumb, so he must be with the CIA. 
For background, Operation Lone Star was a sprawling federal investigation of money laundering, but it began in 1981 as a probe of oil price manipulation in Houston. One of the principal targets of the initial probe, Miami tax lawyer Lance Eisenberg, also happened to represent Lamar Chester, which is how the former Miami-based Eastern Airlines pilot and his opulent lifestyle caught the attention of the U.S. Customs and Internal Revenue Service agents assigned to the Lone Star Task Force. As its scope widened, Lone Star spread to Atlanta, Charleston, West Virginia, Pittsburgh, New York City, and Florida. Eisenberg was indicted in Houston, Atlanta, and Charleston. He was suspected of masterminding the funneling of billions of dollars of laundered money through the Bahamas, Grand Cayman Islands, and South Florida banks. That's also why his client, Lamar Chester's involvement with a Nassau trust company and ownership of islands became the focus of the sprawling investigation that continued into Atlanta. And so you fly to Atlanta. Yeah, and and when we land... Bob gets a rental car and we drive out to Lamar's place in the countryside outside Cleveland, which was what's left of it, a tiny old town in the Georgia Hills, about 75 miles north of Atlanta, a gas station, hardware store, little diner with a 50s rock and roll theme. What was the atmosphere at Chester's place when you arrived? It was kind of strange. First thing, they put Bob up in the guest house on the property, drop him off there, and I'm staying at the main house with Lamar and Artis, his wife, who I can tell right off really doesn't want me there at all. Why did you get that impression? I remember her as sort of a glowering presence, very dark, always in the background. I don't think she said a word to me the whole time I was there. Sounds welcoming. <laughs> it was kind of strange, and... I guess starting then, but certainly over the years, I've come to think of her as sort of a driving force beyond all this. Sounds to me like she sort of egged Lamar on, and she was quite capable of doing that. Lamar was always trying to please her. Her previous marriage was to a a guy from a mob family. Happy and Elliot both told me that Lamar got started buying airplanes with mob money, which is, is a big thing to consider here when we're considering possibilities, that sometime later, when everything was going downhill, Ron Elliott showed up and there was that previous husband coming out of the Chester's house in Georgia. So, you know, my impression was that she was making it easier for Lamar to fulfill his fantasies. Drug smuggling were part of it. Women were part of it. A quick note here. I did request an interview with the artist through her daughter, A.J. Henderson, who declined my request to speak with either one of them or to comment on Phil's characterization. It's interesting, though, to me that when you got there, you're the one staying in the main house and Bob staying in the guest house. Yeah, it didn't make much sense to me at the time. Actually, nothing about this was making any sense. What I eventually figured out was that they must have done this to make it easier for me to talk to Lamar about what my bosses back at CIA headquarters had in mind for him. What was your interaction like with Lamar? What did you guys talk about? Not too much, for sure, because I, for one thing, I didn't say that much. One time, though, I remember we were driving around the grounds there. He had about 500 acres there, rolling hills and pasture, and we passed by this pond, an irrigation project that he was having some work done on at the time, 
And for some reason, it reminded him, and this was right out of the blue because we'd never spoken about the subject before of Clay Williams, the intercept detective, who was found dead in the Everglades. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry, he brought up Clay Williams? Why didn't you mention that before? It just came to my mind when we were talking about driving around with Lamar past this irrigation project. And he said, you know, when they found him there, a lot of people thought I did it, which I didn't. But it sure gained me a lot of respect, and I'll tell you that. It's sort of laughing when he said it. Not exactly comedic fodder, but did you push him for more details about what had happened? Like I said before, I didn't ask too many questions. I think that's one of the reasons I was able to get along so well. But I don't know then, and I certainly didn't know now, exactly why he brought it up. You know, Lamar was always working the angles. Was he fishing for information from me? Was it a warning? I don't know. Speaking of Clay Williams, let's pause here for a quick update. At this point, I'd poured through newspaper clippings that covered the Atlanta leg of Lone Star's grand jury hearings. In them, there were multiple mentions of a man murdered and left to alligators in the Everglades. Leslie Bickerton, a controversial witness who is, in accounts, described as Chester's former accountant, tax consultant, and or mistress, recounts conversations she had with Chester that involved a Clayton, sometimes an Ed Clayton. Quote, and two other men had been murdered and fed to alligators, unquote, and that, quote, Lamar was very mad at him, unquote. I was now pretty convinced that Ed Clayton could be Clayton Williams, as the timing also checked out. Ms. Bickerton's testimony placed that conversation in the fall of 1981. After making little headway with my initial records request, I reached back out again to Jeff Lewis, the former Miami-Dade detective I interviewed in our first episode, who kindly linked me with the man you're about to meet. My name is David Denmark, and I'm a detective with the Miami-Dade Homicide Cold Case Unit. I've been a cop since uh, 1993, so going on 30 years, and I spent 20 of those in homicide. Although the records department had done a thorough search, they were unable to locate the police report on Clay Williams' death. It was complicated by the fact that the department recycled case file numbers in those days, and when they pulled what they initially thought was the correct one, it contained the report for an entirely different murder. Frustrating, but somewhat understandable given the time, according to Detective Denmark. There's over 10,000 cold cases in Miami-Dade, which is a staggering number. I would tell you that the 80s were a very large part of the 10,000 cases compared to other years. They were handling two and three a day, and that lasted for quite some time. Particularly since... 81 and 82 saw record numbers of homicides in Miami. Yes, and to speak on that, the type of homicides that they were receiving were in vehicles or in pools, meaning they would come out to the scene and there would be three people unidentified in a pool, bound and gagged and shot in the head, or they would come into an apartment and there'd be two or three people bound and gagged, or they'd open up a trunk of a car and find two people bound and gagged. So it was rough on them. They were really 
a different type of investigator as to the investigator today because they didn't have the technology that we have today with advancement in DNA, DNA in general, gun passes, tag readers, computers, websites. And so those reports compiled pre-computer era were contained in folders consisted of physical paper, clippings, and photos stored in files and warehoused. Storage that has withstood physical relocation due to moves and catastrophes like hurricanes and flooding, all of which makes locating older case files much more complicated than simply searching a database. There's a process that we follow as cold case detectives to locate files, and that includes our archived files. We contact our property and evidence bureau along with warehouse personnel, and we give them the case number. Sometimes it takes two to three weeks for them to go through everything, documentation, folders that were created back in the day. We try to exhaust all of that before digging into the medical examiner records. And that's the point we'd gotten to. As Detective Denmark pursued tracking down the medical records for Clay Williams, I continued to look for anything that linked him to Lamar Chester. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed 
change my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to Phil Stanford and his 1984 visit to Lamar Chester's 500-acre farm in Cleveland, Georgia. Looking back on it all, I, I guess one of the reasons he thought I knew more than I did was because I never said that much. Most of the time, I just listened. Another time, we were sitting in their living room. Nothing fancy about the place. Shag carpets, heavy wooden furniture, big picture window overlooking the gravel parking lot, listening to country music. And Lamar, for some reason, starts talking about this valuable German pistol he's recently acquired and brings it out to show. Actually, he says he's got two of them, a matching pair. And I say, Lamar, are you a pretty good shot? <laughs> and he says, yeah, not bad. At which point I say, hey, Lamar, why don't we go out and get some target practice? Which was really a strange thing for me to say. I don't know where it came from because I'm not a gun person. I'd been to the target range in Miami with Bob and some of the other intercept guys maybe twice. But I'm really less than an average shot, and here I am challenging Lamar to a shooting contest. What happened? Well, I remember Lamar and Artis, who was in the living room then, looking at each other, exchanging glances. I even thought I saw a flicker of fear, or at least uncertainty, in his eyes. No, I don't think so, he said, because as I realize now, he was probably worried that I'd take the opportunity to shoot him and say it was an accident. As he was telling everyone at the time, they were either going to have to drop the charges against him or they were going to have to kill him. So do you think maybe at this point he was getting a little paranoid? To this day, I have no idea how consciously I was playing on Lamar's fears or his belief that I was a CIA agent who'd come to help him with his gray male defense. But (laughs) I can see now I was really getting into it, too. Wow. So how long were you a house guest in that dysfunctional dynamic before the pretrial hearings began in Atlanta? It couldn't have been too long, you know, just three or four days. And Bob flew back to Miami and Lamar moved operations to Atlanta. Pretrial hearings were going on. And here I am staying at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, which I know is costing more per night than I'm probably paying a month in rent back in Miami, watching these proceedings in federal court. Exactly why, I don't know. I'm supposed to be a consultant, but no one, Lamar or anyone else, ever asks me to do anything. So I just watch. Did any of the testimony really stick out as noteworthy? Well, yeah. The star witness. In fact, the whole point of the hearings was this tall, slim woman in her 30s, Leslie Bickerton who the newspapers were billing as Lamar's bookkeeper and mistress. Do you remember seeing her testify? What do you remember about her? Lamar's lawyers are trying to get the case thrown out before it even gets to trial. And this is their claim. They say that Leslie 
who at one point had skipped out on Lamar and gone over to the feds, gave them some phony documents to make Lamar look even guiltier than he was, that they actually created some false documents and, along with the investigator in Houston, inserted them into a collection of actual documents she'd kept from her time working for Lamar. And those documents were used as evidence for the grand jury. And after that, they say she'd had a change of heart and gone back to Lamar and told his lawyers all about it. Yeah, from what I've read, she seemed kind of caught in almost a tug of war in terms of her loyalty between the prosecution and the defense. You know, I did go back through old newspaper archives and looked into the testimony she'd given in Houston. And it would appear that Leslie Bickerton had gone to Georgia to help set up that college campsite, River Hills, for Chester. And that she ends up moving to Houston and becomes a paid witness for the government there. You know, the papers do fluctuate between calling her Chester's mistress, bookkeeper, or accountant. But, you know, the interesting thing to me anyway is that she also mentioned that Chester had told her that he, quote, got rid of a man and fed him to the alligators. And she says that he mentioned the man's name as Ed Clayton. So if the timing works out, that's a pretty big coincidence, don't you think? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's extremely important, and it sounds to me like she's someone we definitely ought to talk to. I haven't talked to her, by the way. Yeah, you know, I've been trying to track her down. The problem is that in the paper they mention that she may or may not be in the witness protection plan. I mean, they spell her name in several different ways, given the different publication. But I've tried every single possible combination to search for her and reached out to even people I think are possible relatives in multiple states. I mean, I'll, I'll keep you posted if I can and get in touch with her, but C.B. Hackworth was also covering at the same time that you were that pretrial hearing in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And he shared some pretty interesting stories about driving Lamar to the Ritz-Carlton to meet Happy Miles. I had never done anything in close proximity to Lamar other than in the Bahamas under the circumstances I had described before. So it was totally unexpected that he wanted me to give him a ride back to his hotel, which was the Ritz-Carlton, of course. My car was the car of a reporter who was making $9,000 a year, and I lived in my car. It was full of trash. I didn't even know if another person could fit in the passenger seat, so I was embarrassed to begin with. I might have made excuses not to do it, except that he wanted to introduce me to Happy Miles. I recognized the name from the indictment. He was not indicted, but he was an unindicted co-conspirator in the case. I didn't know a great deal about him. The name kind of drew attention to itself. I was trying to be a reporter to gather information. So yes, I wanted to meet Happy Miles for whatever it was worth. As it turned out, it was well worth the trip. But first, CB had to deal with the issue of his cluttered car and rather empty wallet. There was some embarrassment and 
professional tightrope that I felt like I was walking there for a minute because I knew that I had barely enough money to get out of the parking lot that my car was parked in at the federal courthouse. And I knew that I was not going to have enough money to park at the Ritz-Carlton and get out. So in addition to being embarrassed about the (laughs) transportation situation, period, I didn't know what to do about the money. People today may have difficulty placing themselves in my circumstances, but ATMs were not a thing. I did not have access to run and get money somewhere, even if I had it, and I don't know that I did. (laughs) So all of this is running through his head as CB walks to his cluttered car with... International drug smuggler Lamar Chester. Did you rush before him and try to clear a space on the seat? My recollection is that I did not have time to even attempt to clean up my car, but at that point in my life... Again, I lived in my car, and I had valuable things in the middle of the trash, McDonald's wrappers. It was just a pile of garbage. You opened the door, and it spilled out. It was like uh, something out of a, a comedy, except to me it wasn't. On top of the embarrassment, I was not entirely comfortable giving him a ride, period because I wanted to keep him at arm's length, and he was closer than arm's length in my car. Lamar folded himself into my car somehow. He didn't seem to mind sitting in my used McDonald's stuff. I believe it was before we even left the parking lot, I brought up to Lamar that I wasn't going to be able to do this without borrowing enough money for parking. And I think seeing my car, he understood it perfectly well. (laughs) And this was one of the more um, disconcerting moments to me of my entire experience of knowing Lamar Chester because I was so careful to try to keep that professional distance. He said he would loan me the money, no problem, and he was in the passenger seat. He held out his wallet, opened it, and it was full of large bills, and he turned his head in the other direction in a almost exaggerated manner. I I cannot even imagine that moment. It was a moment that I was not really prepared for, and... By that, I don't mean in any way that I was tempted to take any of that money for myself. It was that it was so obvious to me what he was doing. He was turning his head, and it was a tacit invitation to take whatever I wanted. I had written enough articles about other people who had come under his influence, the chief of police of Cleveland, Others who were literally on his payroll. Dan Davis, who had been a reporter at one time and ended up as an officer of the company that held River Hills with Leslie Bickerton. Basically working as a publicist almost. 
I was very aware of Dan and his transgressions, certainly as a reporter, because he continued to write about Lamar after he had was working for Lamar. You just don't do that. You certainly don't do it without telling your readers that you have that conflict. Dan wrote the notorious article in The Telegraph that had a glaring headline that said, Unglued Agents Pursue White County Farmer, as if that was as simple as the government's investigation of Lamar Chester was. I was very keenly aware of people like Dan Davis and Charlie Harrington, the chief of police, who had become financially beholden to Lamar Chester. I had written about it. I certainly was not going to be one of them. So I was quite uncomfortable taking even the money for parking. So he held out his wallet. It was full of large denomination bills, hundreds. And I looked while his head is turned for a small bill. And I believe it was a $10 bill. I reached in there with my fingers, my forefinger and my thumb. If I had a pair of tweezers with me, I would have tried to use them to pull it out. I so did not want to touch any of the real money in the drug smuggler's wallet. But I got this $10 bill out and I said something like, okay, and when he looked back at me, I was holding the $10 bill in my forefinger and thumb for him to see what I had taken. What happened after he saw you holding the $10 bill? He was grinning. I think that there was an unspoken understanding of what had just happened, that he gave me the opportunity to be bribed, and I did not take it. And he was kind of amused. I told him profusely (laughs) that I was going to repay this $10. The $10 that I borrowed aside, I wasn't sure why I was going to the Ritz-Carlton to meet this fellow. I didn't know why he wanted me to. This is all sort of, you know, backroom drug smuggling buddy stuff. And he's inviting me to have an inside view at it. In my car, he's telling me that Happy Miles had cut a deal with the government in exchange for immunity. And he was supposed to testify against Lamar and other defendants in the case. Yet, apparently, Happy Miles was in Lamar's hotel room. I really couldn't quite reconcile that. If the guy is going to be testifying against you, why have you got him in your room? As CB chauffeured Chester to the Ritz-Carlton, his thoughts were spinning. I mean, are there people in his room waiting to kill me? You know, those kinds of thoughts flash in your mind when you're dealing with someone who was accused of the things that Lamar was accused of and that had the kind of testimony that had arisen in the case. 
A quick aside, in addition to the mention of a man fed to alligators who may or may not have been Clayton Williams, I discovered that in pretrial transcripts, a prosecutor involved in the Houston leg of Lone Star specifically refers to Clayton Williams by name as a potential witness against Lamar Chester. This lends extra weight to possible motive for his murder, particularly since Chester was quoted as calling him a snitch who had to be gotten rid of because information he possessed made him a threat. In addition to Williams, there were also several other Lone Star witnesses who died prior to or shortly after testifying. I'll let Phil Stanford explain. Yeah, one of them was Sibley Riggs, papers described as a beautiful young yacht salesman whose body was found stuffed in the trunk of a Mercedes in the Fort Lauderdale airport in late 1981, shortly after she'd been subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury in Houston. Another was her boyfriend, a mobster named Alan Rivenbark, by all all accounts, a slightly crazy, dangerous person who had already testified before the grand jury. He died in a plane crash on his way with some others to a mob hangout in Colorado. There was also an Alfred J. Miller, a business associate of Chester's with ties to River Hills, who died under suspicious circumstances in Nashville and was cremated almost immediately, as in the next day. This happened in 1982, shortly after he learned he was about to be subpoenaed to testify before Lone Star's Atlanta grand jury. So the question is, you know, were these connected? If they had testified against Lamar, would they have been a further danger to him? If Lamar wasn't involved, was the mob, because the mob certainly didn't want anyone expanding the scope of the investigation. Whatever the answer is, certainly it would have weighed heavily on Lamar's mind at the time, whether he was involved or not, because of the additional deaths around him. He was quite worried about his own future. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. 
We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to C.B. Hackworth meeting Mr. Happy Miles at the Atlanta Ritz-Carlton in 1984. Mr. Miles, having just returned from a sort of two-year exile that was part of his immunity deal. Two years basically spent sailing around the world. Lamar was happy, no pun intended. He could not have been more pleased that Happy Miles had made a deal that got him off the hook, even at Lamar's expense. What Lamar had to say about that was that he wasn't worried. He had nothing to hide. That whatever Happy was going to testify to, truthfully, was not anything that would get Lamar in trouble, according to Lamar. As Lamar escorted CB through the hotel lobby, they were met with a rather warm reception. It's hard to tell where Lamar ended and the Ritz-Carlton began because their customer service is so good. They know their guests. As we walked in, somebody who worked at the Ritz-Carlton did say, welcome back, Mr. Chester. He stayed at the Ritz-Carlton when he was in Atlanta for those prolonged pretrial hearings. It was his home away from home. I want to hear your first impressions of Happy Miles when the door opens. I would say his name suits him, almost like something Carl Hyacin would come up with for a novel. I'm not at all sure that Lamar had even told Happy that I was coming or who I was. It may have been a surprise to Happy. Didn't really matter. We got this warm reception I think Happy had already had a few drinks and was making one for himself. Happy was not physically what I had imagined. The other co-defendants who I had seen, like Ron Elliott, they were all what you would expect an airline pilot to look like, you know, a former airline pilot. I could always picture Lamar wearing an Eastern Airlines uniform. I could picture Ron Elliott wearing an Eastern Airlines uniform. 
I saw Happy Miles, and I could not picture him wearing an Eastern Airlines uniform. (laughs) I'm not sure I could have pictured him wearing an Eastern Airlines mechanics outfit. (laughs) Happy, radiated good times. Without knowing his biography, you could infer from his physical appearance that he was a guy that liked to have a good time. A persona that didn't seem too dampened by the current circumstances. It's hard to say what I expected, but it was not laughter and this gregarious reception from somebody who is so immersed in consequential legal actions with the United States government. Here I've got on one hand Lamar Chester, who is flaunting practically his relationship with a member of the news media. And you've got Happy Miles, who is virtually flaunting the fact he's just got the deal of a lifetime. And in true form, that's not all Happy was flaunting. These days, you'd use the word bling. I don't think that was a thing then. It was unusual in my experience to see someone wearing so much of it. He had a Rolex. He had something gold around his neck. He had a bracelet that spelled out his name in what I took to be diamonds. And I assumed that all this jewelry that looked like it was gold probably was gold. And again, what little I knew from Lamar on the way over to the hotel was about an immunity deal. I learned more about it in the room. Federal prosecutors in this case obviously did not make public developments like immunity deals. First of all, often it would get someone killed, but they didn't want us knowing anything that wasn't in open court. And yet, here was a very happy, happy Miles, happily sharing his story with a young reporter on the record. I mean, you couldn't make this fella up as a character. And he's real, and he is in Lamar Chester's hotel room. So Happy basically backed up what you had heard Chester testified to in the Bahamas, his claim that he had done everything with the understanding of the DEA and the CIA. Happy absolutely backed up Lamar's claims. Happy backed up everything Lamar said in terms of general statements about the drug smuggling having been done in concert with different government agencies and agents, that agents supposedly got information from Lamar, passed it on, acted on it successfully, according to Lamar, and in turn, they let him continue to smuggle marijuana. After all these years, what sticks out most to C.B. Hackworth about the surreal gathering at the Ritz-Carlton was the way it contrasted with the reality that other potential witnesses involved with the investigation, like Clay Williams, wound up dead. They didn't know who killed who, but there were dead people. It bothered me. I was a lot 
younger and braver than I am now. I wouldn't say I was ever reckless, but I didn't take as many precautions as I probably would now. But here I am in this room with two of the major players, and I can't believe that Happy Miles is in the room. If he's going to testify against Lamar Chester, if even a small amount of what has been either implied or outright stated about Lamar Chester being dangerous is true, then how can you be a witness against him, a newly agreed upon, I'm getting immunity and I'm going to testify against you witness? And they're sitting there yucking it up about old times. I mean, Lamar could have killed him in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) for all happy knew, but I did take that to mean that Happy Miles literally was not afraid of Lamar Chester. But CB, he was beginning to fear the real danger involved the information Chester had shared and the people linked to it. I'm the person he called in the middle of the night. I worried that I knew too much. It's really interesting to feel like you're the confidant of somebody who knows things that may or may not have gotten people killed. And you're now on the receiving end of that information. Yes. On the next Murder in Miami, perseverance pays off on double fronts in a connection with a mysterious key player in the Lone Star legal proceedings. I can understand she would have been worried back then for sure. Bodies turning up all over the place. And a major break in the search for information about the murder of Clay Williams. This man who was going to turn on him and had to get rid of him. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stamford and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies 
Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.